Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another sparkling week of Diffusion Science Radio, the world's most entertaining science show and podcast. I'm Tilly Berlin, and this week we'll be sifting through the science of diesel cars and discussing some fishy science. So if you're listening to us on 2SER in Sydney, or somewhere else in Australia on the Community Radio Network, or you're listening to the show on your MP3 player of choice during your climb up the Himalayas, settle back and listen to the dulcet tones of Vanessa Gardos, who has dutifully collected all the latest science news for your listening pleasure. If you think pregnant women have it bad, spare a thought for the female stumpy-tailed lizard. This Australian reptile endures what scientists say may be the world's worst pregnancy. The pregnant stumpy-tailed lizard carries her infant until it weighs more than a third of their own body weight. This is equivalent to a human giving birth to a seven-year-old child. And if that isn't bad enough, the lizard doesn't get any extra body space or swelling to contain this growing fetus. Dr Susie Munns, a researcher at the School of Veterinary and Biomedical Sciences at James Cook University, is conducting ongoing research on how these lizards can survive such an extraordinary pregnancy. The lizard's abdomen can't expand because of the rigid scales that cover most of the animal's body. This means that the growing fetus is forced to lie on top of the mother's lungs and digestive tract, so that in the latter stages of gestation, the females can no longer move much or eat. Towards the end of pregnancy, mother stumpy-tailed lizards have been observed moving much slower and often have difficulty escaping from predators because their oxygen consumption is hugely reduced by the compression of their lungs. It seems that the unusual size of stumpy-tailed lizard offspring is a reproductive technique to promote survival of the species. While maternal investment in each baby is high, the chances of survival are also high due to the large size and independence of the offspring at birth. It's common knowledge that humans and gorillas are closely related, but we might have once shared even more. New research from the Florida Museum of Natural History has shown that gorillas living around our early hominid ancestors may have passed on the pubic lice parasite. These parasites, which live not only in pubic hair but also other hairy areas apart from the head, suck on blood and can only survive for a short time without a host. The study's lead author, Dr David Reed, has concluded that archaic humans and gorillas may have lived in close proximity 3.3 million years ago, something which was not known previously. Reed and his colleagues speculate the contact could have occurred in at least three different ways. Sexual contact between gorillas and early hominids, ancient humans consuming or handling gorillas, or by sharing sleeping areas. And they haven't been able to rule out any of these possibilities yet. The team studied lice collected from primates in Ugandan wildlife sanctuaries. Because the parasites have evolved along with their hosts, gorilla lice today represent a different species to modern human lice. So by extracting DNA from the lice and comparing it to fossil data, they were able to estimate that it was 3.3 million years ago that the two parasite species had a shared common ancestor. 
The study also suggests that human head lice, an entirely different species, originated from contact with chimpanzees. Today, gorillas suffer from pubic lice, but not head lice, while chimps are the other way around. And lucky us, we humans get to endure both parasites. You know those cards you get in hotel rooms? The ones about saving the environment by hanging up your towel rather than leaving it slumped over the edge of the bath? Well, it seems that herd mentality might be the key to getting people to think more about the environment. One spur to get people to act is to honestly tell them that that's what the majority of people are doing in this situation, said Robert Cialdini, a psychologist at Arizona State University and author of a study linking social psychology and environmental conservation. Cialdini and his colleagues surveyed nearly 2,500 Californian residents and found they offered three main motivational reasons for household conservation protecting the environment, being responsible citizens, and saving on energy costs. They gave the lowest rating to because the neighbours are doing it. But this factor showed the greatest correlation with reported energy conservation. They were fooling themselves. What their neighbours were doing turned out to be a powerful message, said Cialdini. The next part of the study looked at bath towel reuse in upscale hotel rooms in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Typically, cards in rooms request the next day reuse of towels, stating that reusing bath towels will help to save the environment. When this card was replaced with one saying, join your fellow citizens in helping to save the environment, towel reuse increased by about 28%. So following your peers often leads you to the right choices. But this isn't always the case. In a further study, the scientists put up signs in a forest in Arizona. One sign showed a scene of three wood-taking thieves alongside texts that urged visitors not to take any of the wood. After passing this sign, park-goers were three times more likely to steal than the average visitor. The subtext message is that everyone is doing it, which legitimises the behaviour, said Cialdini. A second sign showed a lone thief with exactly the same text. This sign made passers-by half as likely to steal as those who didn't read the sign. And finally, a story which shows that a quality Wikipedia article has been edited many times and by many different people. This is particularly relevant to us at Diffusion as this week marks the Wikipedia inclusion of an article on Diffusion Radio. Wikipedia, for those unaware of this internet phenomena, is a free online encyclopedia which can be edited by anyone and everyone. The recent study published on the ARXIV website shows the power of cooperation. Wikipedia has seen 236 million edits by 5.77 million different contributors since its birth in 2001. Dennis Wilkinson and Bernardo Huberman from the Hewlett-Packard Information Dynamics Laboratory in Palo Alto, California, studied the editing dynamics of Wikipedia articles. The first thing they found was that the number of times articles are edited is not random. Instead, there is a small proportion of highly visible or relevant articles that are edited often, while others are edited less often. Secondly, the researchers found that the high-quality articles are edited more often and by more people than other articles. So article quality continues to increase as the numbers of collaborators and edits increase. This correlation validates Wikipedia as a success as a successful collaborative effort, say the researchers. This may be so, but according to Deb Polson from the Australasian CRC for Interaction Design, it doesn't necessarily validate it as a place to go for the truth on everything. Decide for yourself about the validity of the Diffusion Wikipedia entry by going to www.wikipedia.com and search for Diffusion Radio.
Ever paid an exorbitant amount of money for car repairs? Mark West has taken a look at the science of diesel cars and why a small rock can do $1,000 worth of damage. I'm stranded on the side of the road in my car. Well, not so much stranded, but I've pulled over on the side of the road in Canberra, caught in an absolute torrential downpour. I can't see a metre ahead of me. The road uh, is covered in, well, a couple of inches of water right now. It's a little bit of a miracle that this podcast will even get out. And not just because of this stranded reason, more because of the amount of car trouble I've had over the last little while. And I'm going to turn this car trouble, this bit of clap of thunder, into a bit of a story about the science of diesel cars. Now, you see, I have a diesel VW, and I've had a lovely weekend down here in Canberra, a bit of a romantic weekend away with the girl. It was beautiful, staying at nice places, eating lovely foods. And what's happened is that I was driving along, we parked, we went and saw Little Britain Live, which was very funny, parked in a car park, and evidently somewhere whilst I was parking in that gravel car park, a rock flicked up, smashed the underneath of my car, the protecting cover underneath the car, and smashed the fuel coolant line, apparently, which then also twisted the, uh, the fuel line itself. And I've had to have pretty much the entire underneath of my car replaced. Just now getting back in the car, having filled up with diesel, we lost about 20 litres of diesel back in Canberra. It's on the floor somewhere. Just a note, I'm wondering whether anyone out there can tell me this. The car seems to be driving a little bit sluggishly, and I understand with automatic cars that the internal computer learns how you like to drive, and so changes gears accordingly. Uh, My car doesn't really seem to be feeling right, and I'm wondering if they perhaps reset the computer. All right, let's hit the road. Ah, Nick Kershaw, wouldn't it be good? What a great song to go home to. Sydney and I thought I'd take a look into diesel cars as if I'm going to pay about a thousand dollars worth of repairs to my only one-year-old car I really should know what's going on. Now to put all this in context I drive a Volkswagen Golf which is an excellent diesel car I think and there are two reasons that I quite like it. The first is that I do a lot of driving long and short distance and diesel cars are more fuel efficient than petrol cars. And the second is, even though when you burn diesel, it produces more greenhouse gases per litre than petrol, or dieseline, as it's known in other parts of the world, the fact that diesel engines are so efficient means that per kilometre, you produce less greenhouse gas output than you do with petrol. Diesel itself is heavier than petrol, as it is less refined. It weighs about 850 grams per litre, compared to around 720 grams per litre for petrol, as it contains longer-chained organic molecules. 
typically chains of 14 carbons compared to 9 carbons. Essentially, these longer-chained molecules release more energy when they're burned in the presence of oxygen, and this means that for the same volume of fuel, you get more energy and more carbon dioxide output, about 15% more in each case. Combined with the fact that diesel engines are intrinsically more efficient than petrol engines, roughly 20-40%, to 40%, you get lots more kilometres per litre, and less greenhouse gas output per litre. Diesel is less refined than petrol. This means it is easier to isolate the heavier diesel from the crude oil that comes out of the ground than the lighter, more volatile petrol. One would think, therefore, that diesel should be cheaper, and it is in many parts of the world. Strangely, in Australia at the moment, however, diesel is more expensive than petrol. It seems to be because much less diesel is sold in Australia than petrol, and so there are less competitive demands, and because it is not subject to the discount cycles that affect petrol. Driving through the gravel car park, a rock has flicked up, smashed the guard on the bottom of the car. Check out my website, mrscienceshow.com, for a picture of the gaping hole. Punctured something called the fuel cooler, which in turn bent the connection to the return fuel line, meaning that the plastic undercarriage of the car, the fuel cooler, and the fuel line needed to be completely replaced, to the tune of $860, including labour costs. Now this has me a little confused. What is this fuel cooler? And what is a return line? The first thing I discovered is that the diesel coursing through the lines in a diesel car is under extremely high pressure, and so special plastic tubing must be used. This means that you cannot simply cut out the part of the hose with the hole in it and clamp the two ends back together. You need to replace the whole thing. This is essentially why it costs so much. Every damaged part needed to be replaced in its entirety, and imported from Germany, I guess, as well. There are a few differences between diesel and petrol cars. A petrol engine compresses the fuel at a ratio between 8 to 1 and 12 to 1. This ratio is the ratio between the volume of a combustion chamber when the piston is at the bottom of its stroke and the volume when the piston is at the top of its stroke. The higher the compression ratio, the more energy that can be obtained, as there is more fuel and oxygen crammed together into the same space on ignition. Diesel engines use a compression ratio of between a 14 and 25 to 1. This higher compression ratio leads to increased efficiency. Unlike a petrol engine, a spark plug is not needed to ignite the fuel, as this compression raises the temperature above the flashpoint of the mixture. When a gas is compressed, its temperature rises. Diesel is directly injected into the combustion chamber, where compressed air is injected and the highly compressed mixture ignites. This is unlike a petrol engine, where fuel and air are mixed before entering the chamber, and then the mixture is ignited by a spark plug. Petrol cannot be compressed to this same extent as diesel, as the compression would raise the temperature above the flashpoint well before this ratio was reached. This is why diesel engines are intrinsically more efficient than petrol engines. I believe the return line returns diesel that is not used in the combustion back to the fuel tank. It would seem that this diesel is at extremely high temperature and pressure, and so needs to be cooled. This is where the fuel cooler tube comes in. A punctured fuel cooler and broken return line meant that about 20 litres of diesel leaked into the car park, but luckily there was enough diesel floating around in the lines to get me to the nearest service station. A couple of days later, after many phone calls to the service people and to VW, I got my car back. Unfortunately, this does not fall under warranty, as it was an accident. Now this is fair enough in theory as no parts failed, although you probably could argue that the plastic on the bottom of the car really should be able to sustain the impact of rocks in a car park when travelling at low speed. 
But even so, that's very annoying in practice, as it was completely accidental with no one at fault. It also meant I didn't qualify for free towing. So never get towed in Canberra, as it costs around about $200 to get towed across two suburbs. Anyway, enough whining, it's a good story, and I must be rather zen about it. I'm lucky to have a car at all, and I've recently heard some horror stories about car damage. It taught me some nice science and gave me another opportunity to chat to my lovely insurance company. I am sure I have got some of the science of diesel cars wrong here, so if you can correct anything that I've said, please do. Write me an email. I'd like to know more myself. Let me know if anything similar has happened to you. See you next week. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me... And we're glad to have you back, Mark. I'll buy the drinks for a while. I apologize. Seem to have arrived home with items in my bag from your house. There's cutlery, a tablecloth, some Hennessy, and a book on presidents deceased. I'll have them FedEx to you. It was a strange thing to do. I hope we can still be friends. Oh, it was not me, but someone else you see twisting the steering reins. Put a penny in the slot and make an artificial light shine. Leave gold, my golden eye. I don't give advice, but be wise and think twice before getting involved in a game. Where the minority face the majority Who are faceless and born without name Was it Noxink when we came across three men They had church candles wrapped in newspaper I bought two from them and I lit one for you I hope the message made its way down the wire Put a penny in the slot and make an artificial light shine Leave gone my golden eye. The soul of a dog, he's alive and not gone to the farm like the others said. A Rhodesian rich back off the beaten track in a furniture shop down on the keys. For the loneliness you foster, I suggest Paul Oster, a book called Timbuktu. Put a penny in the slot and watch the drunken sailor boy dance. She will not let you be her lover. She goes out looking for the tag. Her phone is ringing straight to message minder Send out a battalion to find her Put a penny in the slot and count the swans through a telescope I can't help from crying, I wish you were mine 
when I was seventeen. I followed my dream up into a high-rise block. The adventures of Ogie March by Saul Bellow was all I had for company. At night time, I'd lie in Beckenham Park with tears like flashbulbs, and recall my treasure-searching days in the rock pools as a kid. To the remains of the Cheryl Plains, or around the bonfire in Naylor's Cove. Good company and grief sit like a dark leaf sits beside a stinging nettle. Put a penny in the slot and make an artificial light shine. Leave gold, my golden eye. And that was Fionn Regan with Put a Penny in the Slot. And now, fair diffusion listeners, for the news that didn't quite make the news, Patrick Ruby, have you got some fishy science for us? I do indeed, Tilly. Um, I've got two items of news here that didn't make the main news with rather conflicting ideas on our eating habits concerning fish. In the first news item... A group of neuroscientists at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School have found that omega-3 fatty acids, which are contained in some fish, may actually act as brain food and increase grey matter in areas that tend to be smaller in people who have serious depression. In other words, they act as antidepressants. It has also been found that eating this particular omega-3 acid, DHA, can reduce the risk of getting dementia and the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And low levels of DHA can contribute to aggression. Scientists have speculated that this is because this particular fatty acid increases the branching of neurons, and if it increases the branching of neurons, it improves their function. So the take-home message: eat fish. The second item comes out from the Eighth International Conference on Mercury, which was held in Madison, Wisconsin, in the USA, and this has come up with a synopsis that declares that mercury-contaminated fish is sufficient to warrant a worldwide general warning to the public to reduce their fish consumption. It has been found that there are increased levels of methyl mercury, which is the compound which is toxic to us in fish. And that increased levels of methyl mercury have been found in fish-eating birds and fish-eating mammals, which may increase their own mortality. The culprits from this increased mercury: there's been increased、uh, mercury rain falling down to earth from the sky, and it has been found that whilst developing nations are decreasing the amount of mercury in their emissions from industry, developing ma- nations have more than made up for it by increasing their mercury emissions. And also, gold mining, uncontrolled gold mining, has led to increased deposits of mercury in our atmosphere. Take-home message from this: Don't eat fish. What do you think? And joining us in the studio is Vanessa Gardos and also Mark West.、Uh, I say、uh, it's about time you shut down your gold mine, Mark. <laughs> um, I won't be buying you any more jewellery, Tilly. Okay, <laughs> but with The fish having more mercury. I thought that it was just things like swordfish that were the really big predators. It depends on the fish.、Mm. As far as as far as I know, the bigger the fish, 
the more mercury it has because big fish like tuna and those kind of things tend, I think tuna, eat little fish. And so it's kind of an accumulation of mercury that's mainly the problem. So I don't know that cutting out all fish is such a good idea, but I, I guess you can definitely consider eating less of the, the larger big game fish. fish yeah. Which are the fish that, you know, those weird men in stripy shirts go out in those chairs that they get strapped <laughs> down to and fish for anyway, isn't it? I mean, that's weird. Mm. Stripy shirts. Yeah, you Sounds know, men weird. that go hunting, they're mm. always wearing those checkered shirts. Mm. Come on. They're very scary. <laughs> the thing is, would you be willing to sacrifice a happy life in order to not have mercury poisoning? Uh, eating fish oh, may not reduce being depressed. depression. Yeah. Oh, right. Although that, that is the results from from one study. It's hard to to extrapolate generally. From Maybe that. like they did with fluoride, they should put antidepressants in the water. <laughs> Omega-3s in the water as well as the fluoride. That would work. <laughs> that would be very interesting. Or is that Because they say that fish oil is meant to be really good for your memory and stuff. I wonder if oh, that's me- giving you the omega-3. I mean, I have no evidence <laughs> with that. But, you know, it is speculation. It would all be helping the neural branching, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's often said that omega-3 fats and stuff are good to rebuild stuff in your brain. I guess it comes down to the old irritating uh, rule of thumb that it, everything's good in moderation. Mm. Oh, what a boring yeah. rule that, that is. That is such a cop-out too. <laughs> but true. Hey, Mike, you're busy. All this sunshine's making me dizzy. When outside, all my clothes dry. And if I'm babbling, please forgive me. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for sticking around. We've had a great time talking about science this week and we hope you've had a good time listening. If you want to contact the Diffusion team about any stories from today, if you want to tell us which has been your favourite story ever or you just feel like emailing us, you can contact us at diffusion at 2ecr.com. To download any of our illustrious shows, just take a trip to our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Tilly Boleyn and I've produced today's show which has had fantastical tidbits from Vanessa Gardos, Mark West and Patrick Ruby. We'll meet you back here same time next week for another week of Diffusion. And I say hey, it's a beautiful day And I'm starting to feel a lot better So wake up, wake up, T-shirt weather It's t-shirt weather